0: Morning, church. Well, Happy New Year in advance. I know this is the last sermon of the decade and we're talking about lust and adultery. But, but lust, though it has deep connotations of sexual immorality, and adultery, though it is primarily sexual in nature in its in its root definition, we know that lust is a form of disordered love, and therefore lust can be expanded to apply to all desires where we seek to satisfy ourselves and our souls by anyone or anything other than the person of Jesus Christ. Adultery is used as an image throughout the Bible as a metaphor to describe God's broken relationship with his people. When people are unfaithful to God throughout the Old Testament, it was referred to as spiritual infidelity and spiritual adultery. So I think there's deep meaning here. Furthermore, Many of you are going to make New Year's resolutions, uh, sometimes our New Year's resolutions or maybe a new decade resolution, maybe some physical workout plan, maybe something about your health, maybe something about money, maybe something that you're going to learn, whatever it may be. I think it's important that we look at the spiritual goals that we need to set. Uh, the aim this morning in a passage like this is to take you to Jesus. My aim this morning is that you would leave, and I would leave, this sacred desk, and that you would leave these doors today longing to be satisfied by Christ. Because lust is disordered love, the cure and the redemption for lust is not more law, but it's actually greater desire to find ways to discipline yourself through the power of the Spirit to find satisfaction in Christ Because the word of God compels your heart to love Christ more. It is a love for Christ, a deep love for Christ, and that lack of satisfaction saying, I'm not satisfied enough. I want to be satisfied more by Jesus. I want more of his word, more of fellowship, more of the things for God. That is the cure for lust. But the only way you're going to do that that is to see Jesus come alive on the pages of Scripture, not the Ten Commandments. So will you take God's word and turn me now to Matthew chapter 5? We are going to see law. This passage does not have the gospel. But how are we going to get there? Let's go there now. Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount. And we find ourselves on this final Sunday of 2019 starting in Matthew 5 verse 27. Point number 1 this morning, the first thing we're going to see is that Jesus exposes lust as the roots of adultery. Jesus exposes lust as the roots of adultery because lust deals with the arena of the soul, heart, desire, motives, intentions. Adultery is the act or the or the actual committing of the sin, but it begins with lust. So verse 27, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. Let me start with one clarification. Let's be clear. Lustful intent will land you in hell because all sin lands you in hell apart from Jesus Christ. But lustful intent is very different from actual adultery. So don't get Jesus wrong. Jesus is not saying... That a lustful thought or a lustful look is equal to actually committing sexual immorality or emotional adultery. All sin leads you before the be, guilty, before the judgment seat of God, but there is a difference. But what Jesus is doing is that he's exposing the root of sexual immorality, which is lust, and he takes you back to the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, you see where the disease began. When you want to deal with the disease, you've got to deal with the roots. You've got to root out the issue. And in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had everything that they needed in terms of the presence of God being with them and God providing for them everything that we, they would need for sustenance as well as enjoyment of life created to be lived out in a perfect, unhindered relationship with God. But God had one prohibition. You can eat from every tree of the garden, but you must not eat from this tree. But when the serpent came, the serpent went for the heart. The serpent said, you have heard it said that God told you this, but let me challenge the word of God. But did God really say that? Because God wants to keep you from something. He wants to hold you back from something that will satisfy your soul, which is to be like God or to know what God knows. That's lust. Lust is to desire what is beyond the boundaries of God. To say to God, God, you've given me this in life. You've given me things to satisfy me, but I am not satisfied. I want more. I want more, and my eyes become the gateway because I begin to see Things that I don't have and I long for them, so then I use my hands to begin to reach for those things. It's all figurative. Our actions, right? Our desires is the root, though. And Jesus exposes this root. Now he refers to what I think all of us are familiar with. Even if you're not a Christian, you've understand that the Ten Commandments: "Thou shalt not commit adultery." That's Exodus chapter twenty, verse fourteen. It's a clear command. God reveals his requirements, which is thou shalt not commit adultery. And most of the religious leaders in Jesus' days and most of the Jews understood this physically. That if I have not committed sexual immorality outside of the context of marriage, I have not committed adultery. And Jesus takes it down into the heart. But he's not teaching anything new. You see, in this passage, Jesus is not introducing new rabbinic interpretation. If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, you also know verse 17 of Exodus chapter 20, which is, you shall not covet. And in that very same command, God gave, through Moses, an example. And what's that example? Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet... Your neighbor's wife. So coveting and lust and desire is already in the Ten Commandments. This is nothing new. But in our passage today, you see that the word lustful intent is the phrase. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. And lustful intent speaks of the motives and desires. The arena which God can only see. Man can see externally what the law judges, which is, have you committed adultery or have you not? But there are secret thoughts in your mind, there are secret emotions and desires, and God sees that. So Jesus simply takes the law into the heart and says, look, God can see into your heart beyond and into where the root of your actions began. To adapt and paraphrase the words of one writer, Quote, to lust is to desire what you don't have and weren't meant to have. Someone else's wife or some things that the Lord hasn't given you, whether it's sexual in nature or not, maybe wasn't meant for you. Lust desires to go beyond God's boundaries to find satisfaction, this writer continues to write. Lust is a desire, is, it is a disease of the soul. It is a disease and a corruption of our desires it's not just sexual as I mentioned earlier lust is a force to be reckoned with lust if you do not deal with it through the gospel it will eat you alive because that's what the disease of the soul does to you and that's why in point number two in verses 29 to 30 Jesus uses hyperbole that you are to go to extreme measures to deal with lust, because if you sleep on lust, it will destroy your soul. It will land you in hell. That's Jesus's words as well as mine. Okay. But point number two this morning is make every effort to pursue purity through Christ. So this passage is very simple. Jesus exposes that lust is the root of adultery, that it goes deeper than the command. And then secondly, because it's so deep, you need to make every effort to pursue purity, and it's through him. He's the one that's giving this teaching, and ultimately it will be revealed that the only way to battle lust is through a relationship with Christ. And so we read earlier that if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now why does Jesus say the right eye? And why does he say if, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away? Why not your left hand? Well, I think he's trying to make a point. In ancient culture, the right side symbolized the arena and the seat of desire, the seat of authority, the seat of power, uh, the seat of privilege. So your right hand is, it, it means like you make decisions with your right hand, right? And, and, and you sit at the right side of the king. You are important. That was What they said so typically then since we mentioned that desire and temptation enters through your eyes he's saying pluck out your right eye and since you'll make decisions with your right hand well cut off that right arm but here's the tricky thing is that you can cut off your right hand you can still sin you can cut off your you can rip out your right eye but you can still lust with your left eye so i don't think jesus is saying do this literally Some commentators make an interesting note, and I don't want you to conclude with this interpretation, but they're saying that Jesus is making an allusion to church discipline. That he's saying that just like in a church where there's the imagery in 1 Corinthians of the church as the body of Christ, that if one member of the body is sinful, you need to remove that member rather than to allow the whole church to be polluted and to go into hell. Now, that's a good interpretation of Paul. In Corinthians, but this is Jesus. But people have gone to lengths to try to understand Jesus. What is Jesus actually saying? I think it's pretty clear. He's not saying do this literally, he's saying make every effort, go to extreme measures because he's raising the bar. And if you were to read this passage, you ought to walk away with law. You ought to walk away with saying God's standard is so high that even if I haven't committed adultery physically, if I've lusted after anyone or anything, I am guilty. That my whole body will be damned into hell. That's what Jesus says. That your whole body will go into hell unless you do what it takes, which is an extreme measure, the, the standard is so high. And I think that's why we often fail when we battle lust, because we set our own standards. So if I were to ask you the question this morning, how do you battle lust? Often you have your own standard, and you have your own ways, right? So to further interpret this, we want to look at the right standard and the right power for battling lust i want you to see this morning that the right standard for battling lust is not more law it's not more commitments or resolutions but it is the gospel of jesus christ you see we fall into this trap where we attempt to make our own contracts and rules that's good it's a good starting point we ought to so if you're in some type of relationship you draw some boundaries right if you're not married yet we have some boundaries boundaries are important If you battle with lust, you have some accountability, some software, some group, hopefully, accountability that you can share with. But you make your own rules. But let me tell you something. Jesus is not interested in your resolution for one year. Some of you say, oh, if I can just be porn free for 2020. Jesus does not want you to be porn free for 2020. He wants you to be free of not just lust. He wants you to be free of all of sin for all your life. So you failed. Your standard is too low. That's the problem, right? And we say, hey, I I don't lust after, you know, sexual things, but I I want more material goods. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut my line of credits. I'm going to stop looking at Amazon.com. God doesn't want you to just cut your credit line. He doesn't want you to have less stuff. Because if you simply do that, you're setting a standard. It's a human standard. God says, I want you to be perfect, I want you to be completely holy, and that's why even if you cut out your right eye, even or tear out your right eye, even if you rip off or cut off your right arm, you're still going to be in hell. You're just going to have one eye less, like a pirate, and you're going to have one less foot. Right? But you'll still be in hell. The standard that we set is too low for God. How do we know this? Go to verse 48. Same sermon. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. What does it say? Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does the word perfect mean? Perfect means complete, whole, and mature. Which means imperfect means immature, lack of completion, unwhole. Now you see the roots of the problem of lust. We long for something as if our desire is immature because our heart wants to mature in something. You want to be made whole. You have all these broken holes in your soul because of sin, so you lust for something to fill that void. You long for something because our hearts were created to long for God, to love God. And when love gets marred by sin, it turns into lust, not just sexual immorality. You think of the boundaries of God, you think of the sexual revolution that we lived in, because lust involves sexual immorality. Someone is created with a certain gender, and they don't want God's boundaries. They say, I want to be the other gender. Or or, I want to have sexual immorality. I want what is not mine. You think of what plagues our world and it's basically people who are not whole. We, our souls, are not whole. We need Jesus to make us whole, but instead we try to fill our soul with everything else in this world that is advertised to us by Satan. But Jesus says the standard is so high. And if the standard is so high, Jesus is trying to make a point. He's saying to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, The standard that you set for yourself, the rabbinic tradition, even the Mosaic law, you can't meet it. So you began to find a way to get around it. And you need the gospel. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can make us perfect. Right? The second thing is we need to battle lust with the right power. With the right power. So just like Jesus using the hyperbole of tearing out your right eye, but you can still see what you're left, what is the right power? If you were to actually rip out your eye or to cut off your hand, you're battling the flesh with flesh. The flesh is so powerful that you cannot fight flesh with flesh. You cannot fight Satan with a gun. You cannot fight sin and desire and motives with physical commitments and the pen. Or some software. Those are just surface things that help. Those things are important. You should have all of that. But it falls short. You need the Holy Spirit in order to fight a spiritual enemy. You need a spiritual power to fight a spiritual disease. And that is where the strongest weapon to fight against lust and adultery is prayer. Do you pray for your spouse If you're married, do you pray for your children? Do you pray for yourself? Do you pray for your accountability partners? Do you pray? Do you pray for the power of the Holy Spirit? Because the discipline to battle lust is not like a workout plan or a diet. A workout plan and a a diet is external. You can actually do it physically through willpower. But that reveals the root, right? You can have a great plan, of accountability and discipline, but the problem is not the plan. The problem is your desire because you could easily meet in your small group or community group and lie or hide your sin. That is the nature of sin. The first thing that happened in the garden was they covered themselves up with some leaves to try to cover up their shame. The first thing that Adam and Eve did when they sinned was they hid from God. And you know what? God said the shrubs and the things that you're covering yourself up with is not sufficient, so I will make clothes for you. And so he covers their shame in the garden. The only person who can cover up our sin and do it righteously and to bring wholeness and healing is Christ. Because even in the garden, we saw the gospel being pregnant, which is after After they sinned, God promised that through a child of Eve would come a descendant who would crush the head of the serpent once and for all. And we know that is Christ. So we need the right standard. The standard is not the law. You've heard it said, but I tell you, you have a deeper issue, Jesus says. And the standard is you need Christ. You need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you need the right power. The power is not more commitment or more more flesh or more willpower or more physical strength or even mm, desire or oomph because none of that will bring you to completion and wholeness and perfection and none of it will meet the standard. You need the power of the Spirit through prayer. That's how we draw upon the power. So the big idea this morning, the big idea this morning And you know this is not the end of the message. It's only 11.41. I got myself another 20 minutes. So Christ calls us to make every effort to battle lust because the failure to do so leads you to hell. That's, if you were just to take the main point of Jesus' words today in this passage, this is where you have to land. Because if you were to say, what. Is Jesus clearly teaching? He's teaching us that Jesus is calling us to make every effort to battle lust because the failure to do so will land your whole body into hell. That's his words. But you know, this is not the gospel. So there's a bigger idea this morning. Take God's word and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I think Jesus knows a thing or two about adultery. I think Jesus knows a thing or two about sexual immorality and lust. He's unashamed to bear the name of adultery. He's unashamed to redeem a family line defined and marred by adultery and sexual immorality. The hope for the sexual revolution, the hope for our society, the hope for everyone and anyone who lusts after anyone or anything, which is all of us, is Christ. I love Jesus. Jesus says this right through Matthew. Matthew writes the Matthew one, 1 the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I'm just gonna point out a few things. Jesus identifies himself as the son of David and son of Abraham. That's at the top of the list. David was an adulterer. Jesus unashamed to refer to himself as the son of David. Son of Abraham. Abraham committed adultery with Hagar because he was impatient and didn't want to wait for the plan of God and the promise of Isaac through the miracle birth and conception. Sarah, his wife, was barren, could not have children. So instead, he says to his maidservant, Hagar, you know what, let's not wait. And Sarah's like, let's not wait. Let's go through our our maidservant and try to bring about the promised seed ourselves. And he committed adultery, but Jesus is unashamed to bear that name. Go to verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Judah was an adulterer. His sons were evil. And Tamar could have been killed. And without Tamar, why did Jesus choose to go through Tamar and Perez? We'll come back to that. Now you go down a little more, verse 6. Jesse, the father of David the king. And look at how David is identified. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Are you crazy, Matthew? Really? You want to write scripture and you're going to air out the dirty laundry of the family? That's what I love about the Bible. The Bible is unashamed to show the flaws of the main characters. That's the point. Everyone leading up to Jesus and everyone flowing out of Jesus is flawed except for Jesus. But look at that. It says David was the father of Solomon by someone else's wife. and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. But we know Solomon was driven by lust, had many foreign wives. Jesus comes out of this line. I think Jesus knows a thing or two about adultery. I want to ask for your permission and your blessing, and thank you for granting it, to give me 10 minutes to explain to you in summary form Genesis 38. So you can turn there. Because I want to say more about Judah, Tamar, and Perez. And I want you to see how this connects to the gospel as the hope for healing when it comes to lust and adultery. My heart beats and breaks and loves Jesus more as I study the story of this flawed character named Tamar. Here's the story. Judah has three sons. Their names are Er, Onan, and Shelah. Two of Judah's sons are evil. The third son we don't know too much about. Judah gets a wife named, Judah goes and gets a wife for his first son, and her name is Tamar. Now, this first son named Er, he's evil. That's all the Bible tells us about him. So God strikes him dead before they could ever have any children. And so Tamar becomes a widow. Now, according to the strange ancient custom of the land, the younger brother is supposed to have sex, sexual relations with his older brother's widow in order to produce an heir. I know this sounds weird. It sounds like a country music song gone wrong. Or maybe every other country music song. But remember, this is a flawed, imperfect plan in a very ancient time. This is before the Ten Commandments. This is Genesis. Very early on. And the ancient custom was well-meaning. It was to provide for a widow because without an heir in the ancient world, a widow was left with no money, no inheritance, no righteous way to provide for herself. But by giving Tamar an heir, she gets to inherit her dead husband's wealth and estates. And weird as it sounds, this is Genesis, but this was the custom that would have at least somehow been seen as the right way to do things. The righteous way, you'll see. So following this custom, Judah goes to his second son named Onan and he tells us, he tells Onan, fulfill your rights. Go into Tamar, your brother's widow, and so basically have sexual relations with her and give her an heir. Now, you see Onan takes advantage of Tamar. He has sex with her but he doesn't do what it takes to produce an heir. You could read it for yourself. There's some minors in here, so read it for yourself. Genesis chapter 38, verse 9. He basically has sexual relations with her, but he does not finish the job. And God is displeased with this. This is what I mean by even though this is an imperfect plan to provide for a widow, God still allows this custom. So, you know what God does? He says, okay, son number two, the second son, you're evil, Onan, so God strikes him dead. So that's two out of three of Judah's sons are struck dead, and Tamar still has no heir. Well, if you're Judah, what would you do? Two of your sons are dead because they get mixed up with Tamar. You have a third son. Are you going to give your third son to Tamar? Your youngest son? So Judah does what probably most of us would do, is that he comes up with a plan. He says, "I'm not going to give her Sheila to you or Sheila." But instead he tells Tamar. He says, "You know, my third son's a little young, so why don't you wait till he comes of age? When he's a little older, a couple years later, I'll give him to you. But for now, go back to your father's house." Some time passes, and Tamar realizes that Judah has no intention of giving his son over to Tamar. So Tamar gets pushed out and marginalized to the fringes of society. This ancient custom, the system now, has been abused. And in a male-dominated society, here she is a widow without a child, unwanted, left to fend for her own survival. She's wearing The garments of a widow. Unwanted, you're a widow. You've already been had. No eligible bachelor wants you. You have no children. You have nothing. We often miss this. We look at Tamar and we say, wow, she's so bad. No, I think she's coy. And I think we forget that she's not in America. She doesn't have rights. She doesn't know what to do. In fact, the Bible gives us clues about her that she kept on her widow garments. She's following custom to the T until she realizes that there's nothing else for her to do. She's desperate. Now, the Bible tells us, Genesis 38, that some time passes and Judah's wife dies. So Judah, his wife, dies. and, And so word gets out that Judah is returning to normal life. He's going to a place called Timnah to shear his sheep desperate but not defeated tamar comes up with a plan it's easy to judge her but again we kind of know the background now and so devising this plan she says okay i'm going to take off my widow garments and i'm going to sit at the gates of enaim and this is the gates of the city where typically the women of the night the prostitutes would sit but instead, she's, I don't think she's dressed like a prostitute. She's wearing a veil. And some of us don't understand what that means. In Middle Eastern culture, especially ancient culture, putting on a veil meant that you belonged to someone or someone was promised to you. Someone was promised to her. She deserved, according to the custom, the youngest son to produce to her an heir. But, it, but the system was abused, and she did not receive that. So she still wore the veil. Judah comes by, her father-in-law, doesn't recognize her, and, and thinking that she's a prostitute, solicits her for sex. How does Tamar know that Judah was, would do this? She probably knew a thing or two about his character, even if the Bible doesn't tell us too much here. So, she, so Judah solicits her for sex. My question is, how on earth does Judah go through with having relations with her, not knowing that this is the face of his own daughter-in-law? Probably because he never lifted the veil. Probably because maybe he was drunk, the Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe he did not care. He was so driven by his lust. He was so driven by that momentary desire to be satisfied that he did not care to look upon her. That he treated her like an animal. That's, that's the only thing I can conclude. But there's some things that we see here. That how smart she is. How did she know that he would not have payments? He didn't have payment on her. But he's wanting to have her. His own daughter-in-law, which he has no idea. So she says, I know you can't pay me. So give me a security deposit. She doesn't use those words, but they didn't have government IDs or different types of deposits or credit cards back then. Like you go to a hotel, right? They make you put a security deposit. If you break anything, they take the deposit. Same way, she says, leave me something. So he says, I will leave you my cords, my staff, and my signet ring, which is his signature. So so he leaves his ID with her. They do the deed. After they do the deed, she puts back her widow garments back on. Some time passes and Judah says, okay, I'm going to send payment. Because he probably doesn't want the word to get out that he's done this. So he's going to give some payment. So he sends a young goat through one of his friends. Take this young goat and deliver it to that prostitute outside the temple gates or the city gates. And when they try to go deliver the goat... The people say, what? We don't know her. We've never heard of her. What prostitutes?" tells you something about her? That's not what she did for a living. They didn't didn't know. So he says, okay, well, I guess I got away with it. Then three months pass. First trimester, she's pregnant. Word gets back to Judah. Hey, your daughter-in-law has become unfaithful. She's committed infidelity. She didn't wait for your youngest son. She's pregnant too. And so what does Judah says? Judah says, you know the custom. Bring her out and burn her. That was the custom. That was the consequence of infidelity, adultery, especially for a woman, this type of shame during that time. It was to burn her. And she says, okay, before you burn me, I have some evidence. She says to her father-in-law Judah, I want you to take a look at some items of the, of the man who impregnated me. And, he, and she brings out Judah's signet ring his staff, and his cords. And Judah looks and says, whoa, hold up, don't burn her. Don't burn her. For she is more righteous than me because I am guilty because I did not give her my youngest son, Shelah, because Judah knew he was caught. And you know how the story ends? The story ends, it began with Tamar having no sons. It ends with Tamar giving birth to twin sons. And what were their names? What were their names? Well, one of them was Perez. The other one, Zerah. And Jesus Christ comes through Perez. You go back to Matthew 1, the genealogy, it reads, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, And it goes on, and it eventually leads to Jesus. Now, what if Tamar got burned? What if God allowed that to happen? There would be no Perez. I don't know why Jesus chose to go through some crazy people. But God could have went through anyone but he chose to go through fallen adulterers and the weirdest way, Judah, to Tamar, to Perez. But along the lines, he cares what happens along the lines. Judah learns a lesson. Judah gets reproved. Tamar gets redeemed. Tamar gets vindicated. Tamar goes down in history The system to oppress and marginalize women in a society. You know, the liberal agenda says it's all about the liberal way of doing things. I think God's way and leading to the gospel does it better. What we need in 2024 is Jesus and the gospel being preached through churches. You, You look at this. Isn't it good that God did not follow through with the letter of the law? which would have condemned all of Jesus' ancestors, if God upheld the law, you would have no Abraham, you would have no, no David, you would have no Solomon. God would have struck them all dead because they're all guilty of violating the Ten Commandments. Every single person in Jesus' genealogy should be in hell. But those who trusted in the promise of Messiah... And confessed their sin and repented would be called sons of Abraham, sons of David through Jesus Christ. The crazy thing is that Jesus, who knows a thing or two about adultery and shame, is unashamed to be called son of David. And he's not ashamed of Judah. He is called in the book of Revelation the lion of Judah. And David came from Judah. Judah. Because no matter what shame you bring to your own name or your own family, Jesus redeems you in his name. So the bigger idea this morning, there are two, is that lust is the root of adultery, but the root of David is the redeemer of adulterers. That is a beautiful testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lust is the root of all adultery, but the root of David is the redeemer of adulterers. And lust is like a lion from hell that devours our souls. But the lion of Judah has overcome. This is what I mean. The answer to the problem of lust And adultery is not more condemnation, is not more law. It's recognizing your sin. It's confessing your sin. Yes, it's taking means to spiritual discipline. But ultimately, the cure comes through Christ. Christ is the person. He is the way we overcome. Jesus is unashamed to bear the name in the line of adultery. So you've heard it said, I've heard it said, Hey, you come from a broken family. You're going to have a messed up marriage. Yes, you'll have some baggage and problems, but Jesus is unashamed of you. Woe to the psychologists that tell you, hey, you came from a broken family. You didn't have a daddy, so you're not going to be able to be a good husband. Oh, your family's broken. That's an insult to Jesus' face. Nobody has a family that's more messed up than Jesus. Look at them. Go back into the Old Testament. You read about them. And Jesus is unashamed because he knows that in him is the sinless power and divine nature to redeem the worst of the worst and to redeem all families. So if your family, whether marred by adultery, lust, or not, the answer is not more shame. The answer is Christ. Christ can redeem every broken individual in here. And the only institution that Jesus Christ has given the most powerful message of the gospel to, to freely preach and to operate. The gospel can be preached everywhere, but specifically, he's given it to the church. And so the church, as family, is your most important healing and redemptive force. Because in the church, Jesus doesn't want all these perfect families, because there is not one. In the church, you're filled with singles, individuals, children, adults, families that are imperfect, that fight and have different forms of baggage. And Jesus says, look, I'm unashamed to look at all y'all bunch and call you my bride, and call you my family, and call you my church. I adopt all of you if you confess your sin and if you trust in him. So what a way to end this decade. It is Jesus Christ who takes our brokenness, makes us whole, complete, and perfect bigger idea one more time. Lust is the root of all adultery, but the root of David is the redeemer of adulterers. Lust is like a lion from hell that devours the soul. But remember this morning, the good news, the lion of Judah has overcome. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as broken people. We come before you as imperfect people. We come before you as people who have baggage and we are messed up in ways. But Father, you come and you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. You're unashamed of our sin. You're unashamed of the things that we are ashamed of. You're unashamed to bear our sin on the cross and to pay the penalty, Lord. You went to the extreme measures on the cross. Not literally, but it's as if you had your right eye plucked out and your right arm cut off. You physically suffered. Not only physically, but emotionally you suffered the judgment of God. Your whole body was judged. You experienced hell for us. Then you rose again. And when you rose, Lord, we saw hope that morning. Father, I pray that you would give us that hope now. Help us to make resolutions that are spiritual in nature. Help us to resolve, to fight for holiness, to make every effort to do so, but only through you and through the standard of the gospel and through the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.